deepening understanding, making connections. Good afternoon, and you're listening to Indigo Radio 107.7 LP, your community radio station. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections on the air every Sunday at noon, and sometimes replaying on Thursdays at 4. We're a group of educators seeking to understand and engage with others in our community and throughout the world. Um, the views expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. Um, our last week's show was on what? About patriarchy. It was patriarchy. part two on patriarchy with part. Chris and Corey. And today we're going to talk a bit about individualism. We usually have really um, shows really grounded in what's happening in the world. And this is definitely connected to what's happening in the world, but it's a little bit more um, abstract than usual. Um, and we're going to talk about individualism and whether or not our uniqueness as individuals is um, a tool for liberation or not. And, and as part of that, we're going to talk about identity. Do you have anything to add to that? No, except for introducing ourselves. We always forget that. Oh, oh, oh my bad. <laughs> so this is Becca. I'm an educator in Springfield and also a graduate of the Spark Teacher Training Program. And I'm Michaela Sims. I'm a local educator as well. And I teach in the Spark Teacher Education Program. And we have in the studio with us Atasidas, Allison, oh, <laughs> Cabana, I was going to, I always have food on the brain. I was going to call her Carbonara. <laughs> and Ajane Hampton. And they're joining us from New York. So thank you all so much for being here. They're in the studio with us from New York. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go to our first song break. This is Rebel Diaz, Revolution Has Come.
get your ticket for the future. Identify the problems and move on to the solutions. You should be involved. Build, show love. That's step number one before we shoot and dump guns. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVW 107.7 FM. That was Rebel Diaz. The revolution has come. And we're back, and we're going to talk about individualism and identity today. Um, and in the studio, again, we have Allison, Atasi, Ajane, and Becca, and myself, Michaela. And I'm just going to start. I really remember vividly uh, taking child, child development as a, what is it, as a student in college. And one of the things that I found actually shocking is that this idea that in child development that a child doesn't know the difference between themselves and their parent um, until a certain stage of development. And Allison, we were talking about that earlier, and I think that that's Freudian. Could you tell us about that yeah. in your studies? Yeah, well, part of what Freud would tell you would be that you identify with your same-sex parent for the beginning parts of your life, and then you reach this developmental dilemma, would be what he calls it, where you have to work through that identification with or the desire for your other sex parent, mm-hmm. and then the the successful revolution or resolution of that is the identification with your same sex parent. So lots of people know this is the Oedipus complex, where boys, Freud says, young boys are in love with their mothers, and they fear their fathers, and they have to work through that fear of, of castration by their fathers, and come through that on the other side, identifying with their father, um, mm-hmm. in order to be a successfully developing adult. Yeah, well, well, that makes you well-adjusted as kind of <laughs> ironic. Only according to Freud. Right. <laughs> right, but I feel like no, most people don't even know that comes from Freud, but that idea is in our heads, that we've been taught that as part of our social norms. I put norms in quotation marks, and that whether or not you know where it comes from, that that is part of our understanding of the world, that... Um, identifying with our parents in that way. And so even the word Oedipus complex, a lot of people know, they might not know what the Oedipus complex is, but they, they've heard that term before. So um, as strange as it sounds, it is something that's constantly taught to us, I think. Yeah, and I mean, this idea of you are one with your parents until you become an adult, or until you become like a teenager probably, and then you become an individual. And I see my students going through that in middle school a lot. And I think that I see it more as socially constructed than something innate to humans. But it's like, I remember my students at the beginning of seventh grade said, would just repeat whatever they'd heard from their parents. And they would say, young people's ideas don't matter. No one's going to listen to us. And then by the time they get to eighth grade, that shift has occurred where it's now that separation. I want to have my own individual ideas. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do or what to think. So that's really interesting too in the idea of um, individuals. Teenage rebellion, which is normal. So Atasi, do you, what do you remember about being taught to be an individual and being individual? Um, yeah, so I was thinking of times and in, in, as I was growing up, kind of like where that notion, like distinctly came up for me Um, and I feel like those really like what sticks out is uh, the idea of like oh you did well in something Um, and so these accolades that kind of happen through like family or through you know whoever in your community and through like schools um, as well as like any other kind of like social um, environment where say you're on a sports team and um, you get to be known as like a really good soccer player because you're, you know, faster or whatever. So like these, pl- these kind of junctures are like ways, places where I, I re- recall um, kind of like being told, being like or reiterated, like this is this is who you are, or this is who you're becoming, or this is your p- possibility or something like that. So um, yeah, schools and other places like that. That's really interesting when you talk about sports because it brought up this idea for me. Um, that I always felt inadequate because I was always average at a lot of the things I did in middle school. Mm. And it was like, so the one thing that I excelled at was swimming. And so it was like, I was pushed and my, by myself too, of like, oh, well, that's my uniqueness. That's where my real strength is. So it doesn't matter what else I love. I should do that thing that, like, st- that helps me to stick out, right? right. 
we're all individuals. I, I don't remember being, um, I remember being, like, when you go to school, like a parochial school like I did, you wear uniforms. And so there's this idea that, um, that you're the same, that you're all the same, even though you're not. Um, but I do remember being in kindergarten and certain students really talking about their abilities. Like, I can count to 100. What can you do? Um, and really the pressure to read. And so then there's also like this idea that there's readers and non-readers. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it is within institutions more for me than in the family that I felt that I was an individual and I had to, I had a certain responsibilities and one was like to do well in school and to keep up with my peers, whether or not I was able to do that. I mean, I think um, I was talking earlier a little bit to Allison about this uh, idea of like where, where like this individualism is kind of focused and like cultivated a little bit. And I, as I was thinking of like, oh, this is the accolades, this is what I've done well, like or whatever. This is this is who you are because this is what you're doing well in. Like the opposite was true. I think in in your com when you were talking about it, I was like, it's not so much. It's what you're not, like what you're not doing, which is like normal. Yeah. Well, I guess part of what we were talking about earlier is that part of how you come, or in my understanding, is part of how I came to understand myself is in other people's appraisals of me. Mm. So also in what's wrong with you. So what you can't be, what you're not supposed to be, which then becomes very salient of, I, Becca, like you were talking about being good at sports. I also was just not very good at any sports but I liked them all. So as an adult, I can't play any sports that have like any type of ball handling because I stopped playing all of them because they were hard for me. Um, but the idea that other people are always watching what you do, I guess, is, is a part of it and forming who you think you are because they constrict in some ways who you can be or who it seems like you can be. Oh, like you're not good at that. Why yeah. don't you, you should swim because basketball is not really your thing. Right. Even though you might love basketball. Right. I feel like that's interesting also to think about as a teacher because I remember really not understanding children who love math that were terrible at it. And I'd be like, really? Like, I never made a comment about it, but, I, but it blew my mind kind of like, I'm like, you struggle in math every day. And they'd be like, but I love it. I can't wait for math. And I'm like, what is going on? And so even I had that construct in my head, like, even though I, I was like, oh, good job. Look how you did this. Um, but in my head, I wonder, like, math is not your thing, <laughs> even though, you know, you never want to say that to a child. But they had the possibility of doing well, but they had been undereducated. But they still had a love of this thing, which, yeah. is, which is amazing, I think. I think it shows resiliency. But in that moment in time, because of my socialization, I wasn't able to see that. And I mean, I think the thing, like this kind of all sounds like benign, like, okay, when we talk about sports, how much does that construct your idea of yourself? But then in this country, and I wonder if it's like this in other places, we're taught like the idea of uniqueness is so constructed mm -hmm. as like, you need to be unique. You need to be special. And it's compiled with this idea that everyone feels inadequate so there's this constant like back and forth within oneself or within groups of people of like the world tells you that you're inadequate and it tells you that you're special and unique or that you at least should be. And so if you're not treated that way, then there must be something wrong with you. Which is all the time. Yeah. Which is all the time. <laughs> which, which I think really connects to like the world in which we live in, which right. is meant to have us so disconnected. Like the, I feel like that, that tension that you're just talking about is like, prime for um, so many other like pulls for people to be disconnected from one another as well as, as, as opposed to like hey we're all thinking this or we're all kind of feeling this why what is mm -hmm. going on like that is interesting and I feel like one of the other measures of like whether or not life is going well for you is a are you happy and if you're in a relationship B does that person make you feel special so it's like always constantly um, 
looking at yourself and so staring at your navel like are you content are you self-realized are you and so we don't ever look at our achievements as a group as a race of people like the human race like what are we doing which if we were measuring that it would be pretty sh- oh bit crappy <laughs> good catch <laughs> <laughs> If we were measuring that, we would get an F. (laughs) So in that way, you know, we're not doing so well. So then in this system, we are forced to look at ourselves as individuals. Because when we look at, when we measure the barometer of perpetual war, it's a pretty bad one. (laughs) So, um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I do think it's important to contextualize our conversation about individuality, that it is historically based, that it doesn't just... It's not like humans have always thought of themselves as unique individuals that are special and like there's a competition amongst people to see who is the best at something. And um, I was reading Samir Amin this morning and just thinking about the rise of individualism coming out of the transition from feudalism to capitalism within the Enlightenment in Europe. And what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. But, the, but this idea that you lived in community with one another and that a family and your community was needed to take care of one another for your survival. And that like that started to shift or at least the ideology started to shift. I think that's still true. But the ideas of people started to shift that I can do this on my own and I don't need anyone else. And if I need somebody else, then I'm a failure. And I think about that in terms of, um, like, with the church, the shifts in the church of only the priest being able to be your way to heaven. Talk to God, yeah. Versus, uh, like, the Protestant ethic that every individual has a communication to God and that every individual can have their own enlightenment. And so these big shifts that happen in history also play a role in our individual lives today. Yeah, of course, we're historical beings, but I think that those um, concepts, although they are part of the fabric of who we are, are not ones that are visible to us all, and they seem distant um, because we're so removed from analyzing how we got to where we are. So many of us are caught up in survival and day-to-day life and also blaming ourselves for the situations that we're in, then we're not able to see that so many of the situations that we're in, whether it be homeless or um, just struggling, substance abuse, are constructed. Mm -hmm. And they're not accidental, and they're not individual phenomena. But that is the, um, that's the, that's the, our understanding is that it's individual. There's something wrong with me. If I'm in a bad situation, there's something wrong with me and I need to fix it. And I fix it from the inside first. And so looking at history and how we got to where we are is not hardly ever the first thing we do. It's usually self-blame and asking ourselves, how do we get into this situation? We might need a break. (laughs) Okay, let's go to our next song. You're listening to Indigo Radio, 107.7, Brattleboro Community Radio Station, and we're about to take a break. What are we going to listen to, Becca? We're going to listen to Anna Tishu and Shadia Mansour, Somosur. Thanks for listening. Tú nos dices que debemos sentarnos, pero las ideas solo pueden levantarnos, caminar, recorrer, no rendirse ni retroceder, ver, aprender como esponja, absorber. Nadie sobre todos, faltan todos, suman todos para todos, todo para nosotros. Soñamos en grande que se caiga el imperio, lo gritamos algo, no queda más remedio. Esto no es utopía, es alegre rebeldía del baile de los que sobran de la danza de mi mía. Levantarnos para decir ya vas, ni África ni América Latina se subas. Un barro con casco con lápiz a patear el fiasco, provocar un social terremoto en este charco.
Bolivia, Chile, Angola, Puerto Rico y Tunisia, Argelia, Venezuela, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Mozambique, Costa Rica, Camerún, Congo, Cuba, Somalia, México, República Dominicana, Tanzania, fuera, Yankee de América Latina, franceses, ingleses y holandeses, yo te quiero libre. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVWLP Brattleboro. We just finished, wrapped up a conversation thinking about our, our experiences and how we've been taught individualism. And we want to shift now towards thinking about what is it that um, our experiences and the development of identities in our world today, because we see that really strong of this is who I am, this is my individual identity, and and so what, I'm wondering what you all uh, think of and your experiences have been around um, both us as history beings, but historical beings, but also how identities play into our lives today. Everyone's quiet. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting because I, when the first question of thinking of individualism, my mind essentially goes to like, oh, identity. Like I kind of see them as like really interconnected if, in my head, I was like, oh, it's one and the same, but there, there's differences. So um, how is identity different? Or is that what you're asking? Um, I think more of the connection. Like okay. individualism is one aspect of, that we've been taught. And I feel like it's kind of another layer upon that, the different identities that um, we're seen to possess or have or be part of us. And I think that, well, one part of it is that we are historical beings, right? And for me, as a person who um, can be, uh, get feedback from the world based on the way I look, the way some, on the way I present, like everyone does, but because I'm a person of color and because it, I could easily be identified as a woman, that no matter what I think about myself, I'm going to constantly get feedback from the world based on those things. Uh, and because of the history of enslavement and other things in the, uh, of this country, particularly, I get a certain message, um, regardless of what I think. And so I think that that is one piece of it that uh, I have to deal, figure out how to deal with that, those messages that I get. But then there is this other piece that all people get, like the question, like, who do you think you are? Um, which I feel like is asked of us all the time and maybe not in that way. Like, who do you think you are to talk like that or to dress like that or to come in here talking to me like that? Like, it's, 
but it's based on the way you present and the history at, attached to those presentations, uh, which is race, gender, class, you know, and also the consciousness, whether you have it or not, that might be attached to those. So I, um, I think that it's one of the things that I struggle with is that when dealing with youth and thinking about myself as the possibility for another world, I think would not necessitate those kind of identifications. But the world that we live in now, they become so important. And so how do we move from that to a more communitarian even understanding of who we are as a people? I don't know. I don't know if that answer says anything. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think I, that how people, how um, people give you feedback of, according to, so say for example, um, if I am to do something that's something that's out of the ordinary for how I'm, how I'm seen, right, as a, a young, young-ish. South Asian, Indian, American person, right? Like, like become a firefighter, will that be okay with your parents? Right, or I mean, like, or how is that seen? So I feel like those are that feedback that comes from community, that comes from others of like, however they react, like, oh, really? That's amazing. Or I think those are part of like this carried over um, unconscious or conscious like shape reshaping and shaping of like your identity and like what you're supposed to be like oh I didn't know that you did that like that's really interesting like why can't I whatever um I guess I'm a, I feel like a little bit confused about it but um yeah those are sort of some of my initial thoughts it's social I'm gonna ask Allison a question she's like she doesn't want it <laughs> no I'm wondering what you because you spend so much time talking with young people about their identity and so I'm wondering what you've learned yourself in that exploration of like sitting and talking to young people. Not that necessarily that you have to speak for them, but just about yourself. Cause I'm sure you must've been thinking about yourself and the world at large while it, during those interactions. Yeah. Uh, well, part of it relates actually to a little bit of what Atasi and I were talking about earlier and how we came to talk about indiv individuality of identities sort of being formed in the same way. So I think about it in my own relationship. So as a not anymore young, 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 <laughs> but as a queer young person. So when I was coming in to like figure out that I was queer of the, the narrative in my family is that you should be who you are. You have to figure out who you are. Um, so I have conversations with my sister all the time who is very supportive in the sense of being like, you are who you are. It doesn't matter what mom and dad think. But there's also the narrative at the same time that you're supposed to be only certain people. There's only certain ways that you're supposed to have your identity. You're supposed to be this and you're supposed to be that and figure out who you are within very strict confines. Mm -hmm. um, so part of, part of identities becoming, or for myself at least, of becoming so central of, of identifying as a queer person was because I wasn't supposed to be. So because that's something that I'm not allowed to be, it, it became sort of a struggle or it was a struggle. Um, and I'm I also consider myself fairly lucky to have parents that are pretty supportive uh, and were from the start, but it was still something that was like, oh, oh, this is happening. Um, and I think that, that those parts of our identities and become identities in part because they're so noticed. Nobody was like, oh, Allison, you're, you're really good at ceramics. You're a potter now. They were like, great, it's a hobby, go for it. They were like, oh, you wanna date this girl though? <laughs> not allowed who are you <laughs> who are you really well and it's interesting because Michaela and I were talking about it this morning that um, the way identity has been constructed in this world is almost like everyone who's um, a political outlier has an identity right um, but growing up as a white person I didn't have an, it was like it just was a neutral identity you're right? regular you're, regu <laughs> yeah, you're regu normal <laughs> I'm normal, the rest of you guys have race and class and stuff. Exactly. I'm a middle class, white, normal person. Mm-hmm. And so how, that to me is one of the most dangerous pieces of identity in that it's seen as like the people with identity are quote unquote the other. And if you, yeah. And I think about that with my students and how um, 
difficult it is because of these two ideas that poor white students have in their heads, right? They've been taught superiority because of their race and they do benefit from the way that the system's set up, but they're also extremely poor and struggling day by day to get by. And so I think about constantly how hard it is to help them see their own experiences as um, political, right? As they are experiencing um, oppression because of the system of capitalism, that false consciousness that they are superior because of their whiteness gets in the way. Right, and but the false consciousness is also that um, that they can be rich. Definitely, right. yeah. And so that, so I don't want, it's just like, you know, the person in the trail park, park saying, like, poor person in the trail park saying that I don't want any new taxes, even though they don't pay taxes, <laughs> right? But it's the idea that one day I will be wealthy enough, and so I don't want new taxes, no new taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see other people that you could identify with making it. And so then it becomes even more of a blame game of like, I so many kids in my school hide that they can't buy new school clothes or that they can't get food. Um, and they don't even apply for the subsidized lunches because there's like such a shame of like, I am this person and therefore I should be succeeding in this world, but I'm not. So what's wrong with me? Yeah, so I, yeah, so I'm, you're making me think about um, how that, identity development in a particular sense uh, like at one uh, in one sense it like creates a group a grouping and at the same time it's like so device so dividing right or it like a lot it doesn't center what it is that we're trying to figure out like it's I'm figuring out myself or who I am in a group as opposed to what's going on in the world or in society so it's like this um, I see it as part of this diversion um, as, it, as much as it is it can be a connection to others right but it also diverts so I wanted to play this clip uh, from the podcast The Dig and it's by um, it, they're interviewing Kianga Yamata Taylor who recently has written a couple books but her most recent book is From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and she's talking about um from her book, How We Get Free Black Feminism and the Kombahi River Collective, um, and the statement that they made in the 70s. Um, a kind of, she talks about it as the formation of identity politics. So I wanted us to listen to a couple minutes of the clip and respond from that. So here we go. And I wanted to start by asking you about identity politics, which has for many come to mean a sort of hierarchy of oppression, something that's about particularity more than solidarity, Mm -hmm. something that is somehow opposed to class politics. And not only does this run counter to Combahee's socialist analysis, but it also runs counter, you note, to long-running Marxist analysis more generally. Lenin, after all, identified special oppression of Mm -hmm. national minorities. So what did Kombahi mean by identity politics, and what does it come to mean today? So th- this was probably one of the most um, fascinating discoveries uh, for me, encountering the, the concept of identity politics within um, the, the, the statement and seeing it as something completely different from uh, that which had been become a popular way of, uh, you know, really identifying the exclusivity of uh, uh, the struggles around oppression, or as you say, the particularity um, that, you know, and the way that the term has has come to be understood uh, is the ways in which it is impossible for those who do not experience uh, a particular oppression to uh, ever be fully invested in any struggle to end it. Um, and that, you know, is uh, really a, a rejection of the intention of 
the the women of Combahee, uh, and to some extent that you know that happens with all ideas. You know, famously, uh, Karl Marx commented uh, uh, near his death that uh, he too was no longer a Marxist, given the uh, the bastardization of uh, what Marxism had come to mean. Um, <laughs> but what the women from Combahee were talking about was the way that the personal experiences, the identities uh, of uh, the oppressed uh, is was central to their process of uh, radicalization um, and became an entry point um, into political activism, which is to say that uh, the experiences of black women or black women who were also lesbians um, that those experiences as uh, African-American in a profoundly racist society, as women um, in a profoundly sexist society, as lesbians in a profoundly homophobic society, uh, were in fact radicalizing because your, your life experiences put you uh, in constant conflict um, with the society uh, in which you were living. Um, and that, that those... Uh, uh, conflicts and contradictions were not just enough unto themselves, uh, uh, but that they created uh, entry points into political um, activism. And so um, part of that is, is the realization that, um, you know, people don't just get politicized over issues of doctrine, um, that it's not just, you know, an, an idea that makes sense. Uh, that compels you to become political. I mean, for some people it may be, um, but there's typically some uh, overlap between that and one's own experiences uh, uh, of uh, oppression and exploitation in some manner um, that uh, compel people uh, to try to do something uh, about it. And so in, in some ways this was an, an, an identity politics for the women of Combahee uh, was a literal phrase, uh, that their identities became the basis of their uh, political uh, consciousness and then um, political activism. Um, but what is also important and what is connected to that uh, and what often um, gets left out of that e equation uh, is that for the women of Combahee, um, that the politics of a solidarity uh, what they referred to as coalition politics was also important, um, which is, and if you read the, uh, the book is a reprint, How We Get Free is a reprint of uh, the Combahee statement um, in addition to interviews with the three authors um, of the statement, Demita Frazier, uh, Beverly Smith, and Barbara Smith. Um, and one of the things that they talk um, they don't just write about in the statement 40 years ago, but they talk about uh, in a very urgent way today um, is a rejection of the idea of exclusivity or particularity um, or what some might talk about uh, colloquially as the Prussian Olympics. And instead, uh, they talk about the importance of solidarity. Uh, Barbara Smith referred to it uh, conceptually as the... Uh, referring to uh, uh, Sherry Moragua's book, uh, this, uh, this Bridge Called My Back, uh, that this was about how you um, overcome the differences in experiences, that how you overcome the differences uh, between people uh, to link together in a common struggle uh, to end a system uh, that uh, thrives off the uh, oppression of others. Um, so welcome back, that was. <laughs> Sorry, I just cut it off, surprised everyone. Surprise! <laughs> that was Kianga Yamata-Taylor. Um, the piece that we just played from is called On Recovering Identity Politics from Neoliberalism. You can find that podcast on The Dig. <laughs> yeah, you gotta hear the end of the sentence there. <laughs> Clip. It was the end of the sentence. <laughs> um, so I'm just wondering, um, in what she was saying, if we can uh, 
take it apart a little bit and talk about what it means to us and our work and the world that we live in. I mean, I think the idea of, for me, of being politicized is an important one because whether we are aware of it or not, so many of the things we do are political acts. And in those, in our daily lives, we are making choices as to what side we're on, which I think of as political acts. Like, are we with, on the side of the people? Um, so many of the things we do show us whether or not that's true in our lives. Um, and so I'm wondering about thinking of politicization as just, um, I guess, as a consciousness of those choices that we're making, even though we're doing it anyway. That's what I was thinking of. Um, I, it's interesting, because you, as you brought up pol politicization, um, and, and how it's in every single act, I was thinking of how identity politics, as she's, you know, this piece seems to be, she's like really digging into um, and historicizing as like that politics being harnessed to a particular term to, to mean one thing. So in New York, um, in my experience, it, racial politics are so central to how um, people see what's going on in the world or and how they um, make decisions of what what's to do. So um, that taking of that, po that po the political acts that happen in every single moment of our lives is now harnessed to identity is the only politic that you can, in, in a particular way. I feel like that's what I see happening. And she, she call, also talks about like being exclusive. Like I can only do this for my people or whatever that means, right? Like there's no um, room to broaden what people, whose people is for, our struggles for and what the struggle is, so. Um, which, actually, Tati, what you're saying, I think was really interesting, and in part of what I w went with um, her talking about was when she was talking about what it was originally to have identities be politicizing, so she re referenced Sherry Moraga, or this bridge called My Back, and she's one of the editors of it, but her piece in that book itself, which is, I think, in the 80s, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's in the 80s, is about how Sherry Moraga is living her life in one way, somewhat unpoliticized would be her own, um, or less politicized, until she comes out as a lesbian and then is politicized in a certain way that brings her into struggle with other folks who don't necessarily have those same identities as her. So identity becomes this place of connection, um, or it could have. I think maybe what I'm hearing is that it, it was or was a the Kombahi statement was about how that was a possibility for solidarities, that that was a place that, that women of color at that point in time saw connections and were able to make connections that weren't exclusive um, and that weren't on the basis of I am X, Y, and Z and I'm only organizing with other people who are also X, Y, and Z. It was I'm organizing with other oppressed folks in the world. Um, and that from the title of that podcast that neoliberalism has co-opted that mm -hmm. into something exclusive and different. Yeah, and I think about um, in terms of race, the identity of race um, in this country was formalized um, during, like at the beginning of enslavement in the Americas, as the Americas are becoming colonized. And particularly, uh, people who were taken from Europe and people who were taken from Africa worked together from the beginning because they saw their struggle as common. They were both being exploited and treated horribly by the plantation owners. And so naturally those coalitions formed and it was pretty quickly that the rebellions were shut down and um, the identity of race was used to shut those coalitions down to make it so that people were no longer able to work together because of the ideas in their head that they were different. So it was small things at first um, 
that turned into larger things like the beginning of the slave patrols were poor indentured servants that were given a gun and said, you get a step up in society if you keep those other people down. And those were the same people that maybe a generation before were working together. And uh, so when I think about how the formation of race was used to separate people, it's hard for me to see now identity being used to link people back together. You said it's hard for you to see how it, it could be a possibility mm-hmm. in the future. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's so, uh, this year we raised a Black Lives Matter flag at the school. And um, that was the one question. It's like, well, what about other identities? And the kids were like, well, the movement for black lives represents all identities. It's not just about black people. Um, and that was one of the discussions. And I, and I think that that is not one that people broadly understand up until now, because mm-hmm. pe- people still say, well, what about all lives matter? And how come it doesn't say all lives matter? Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that we're so entrenched um, that, and that the, the visions are so strong that the possibility of solidarity is really a huge challenge. And so for people to say, okay, we can't say all lives matter until, we, until society for sure reflects that black lives matter. Um, and I think that a liberated society, uh, the construction of race wouldn't matter. The construction of gender wouldn't matter but we're not there yet. And so I'm, I do wonder then, how do we continue to create solidarity in this particular moment in history where what I look like really matters. It really influences how I get treated uh, all the time and in small ways and big ways. And so what do I do moving forward? I mean, I think about that when I think of my children and it breaks my heart, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. the construct is there where a lighter child has a different life experience mm-hmm. than a darker skinned child in our world already. Yep. Um, I, I also, think that it's interesting to see, like to connect these um, formations and reformulations of identity in relationship to how, like wh- who's supporting and in what ways are particular uh, ideas around identity um, forwarded. So like it's Pride Month, right, in New York. I don't know if it's nationwide, it's everywhere, nationwide, right, yeah. nationwide. Um, and there are these pride marches that are corporately now funded. Mm. And so what does that mean when particular um, proclamations of identity and like what that is connected to is then um, supported by the same banks and the same people that need separation that, mm-hmm. um, and so it's, it's a, I think I agree. I think it's a really tricky and um, like we have to do a lot more work and to be really more vigilant to understand what it is that is being taken up. I, I yeah, so it's a bit of that. I mean, one of the examples that always sticks out to my mind in terms of identity and solidarity is um, this, the Rainbow Coalition that existed for like one or two years in Chicago that was um, the Black Panthers, the Young Patriots and the Young Lords all coming together. And the Young Patriots are a white working class um, organization at the time that a lot of of their ancestors came from Appalachia and moved up to Chicago looking for jobs. And so they had this like Southern pride um, part of their identity, right? And so there's, it's more clearly um, understandable, I guess, in this point in time, why the young lords who were... uh, Uh, Chicano and Puerto Rican liberation struggle and the Black Panthers came together and then all of a sudden you throw in this like group of people that are waving the Confederate flag and really proud of their southern white heritage working together with this group 
And there's um, a documentary that I recently watched about it where um, a Black Panther's speaking at one of the... Fred Hampton. Yeah, was it Fred Hampton? Yes, yeah. it's Fred Hampton. And so he says, someone asked him, like, why do you... Like, they wave the Confederate flag that's against you. And he said, um, well, if we can use that to organize, we'll use it to turn people, then that's what we need to do. And so it's interesting. I always, I mean, to me that, yeah, Fred Hampton is amazing. And I feel like I've seen that where he does that speech. And, he, and, and man, one of the men said, if that's what he's, I'm down with him and stands up and says, I'm following him. Um, because Fred Hampton really was strong. And I, I feel like that's why they assassinated him because of that coalition that he built, because all those groups of people were experiencing the same oppression by the state. Yeah, the police violence. They were able to see it. It was really, really clear. And um, I feel like it's, now it's more muddled in some ways, even though the veil is off. But the veil that's off right now is class-based very much. And so that middle-class people are, and especially women right now, are really becoming active. And um, so I don't know how we move forward in terms of incorporating other groups of people. Because even if you look around the studio, like who's in the studio, right, with us? And, um, and that's the question, is that everyone now is feeling politicized around the political climate, but has it really changed? Is it really that different? Well, it's different for some people. And those of us who have been on the bottom all along, it's kind of the same for. And so how do we look and to include those people in this building of solidarity moving forward the same way Fred Hampton did in Chicago? I mean, you say the veil's lifted. I feel like the veil is stronger than ever over the eyes of, um, certain people, particularly poor white, because there's this person in power that they identify with that's um, giving them false answers to what's going to make their lives better. And of course, that's not the only people that support Trump. We know that actually Trump's most political base is wealthy white people. Um, But this idea of like chanting for the wall or using the Bible to detain children and separate them from their families, you know, on Father's Day, this is happening. And that somehow people can rally behind that against their own interests, to me is um, one of the most difficult things to penetrate. That makes a lot of sense to me. So we are coming to an end. I'm gonna play a quick um, message from our underwriter, everyone's books, and then we'll come back to wrap up. Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website, at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio on WVW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Oh, that was a quick break. It was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just want to say thank you. I think that this is one of the challenging conversations to have and it it seems abstract but I think it's so relevant especially in this world where we're dealing with what seems to be more I don't know Allison you might be able to tell us more seems like more people having more and more mental health issues or people are struggling with mental health more and more it seems like and younger and younger um maybe before we didn't notice but I feel like the schools are really full of young humans that were struggling. Um, and those struggles are thought of as individual mm. struggles. 
yeah, so I, I would say a lot of that, and I don't know if it's more or if we just talk yeah. about it more, right. um, but putting those struggles in individuals and not paying attention to the structures around us that are causing that, what's happening in politics, what's happening in our schools, mm-hmm. um, do we have enough to eat, do we have jobs, are we able to survive in the world, um, which is really a huge part, I think, of, of where those struggles are coming from, but there, there are... And there are some people who see that um, and structures who see that, but I think a large, overwhelmingly, we're placing it on people, on individuals, um, which is, is always going to be a symptom, I think, or my, my version of it's more of a symptom than the actual problem itself. Right, so like, instead of looking at like, what are their parents doing, what inadequacies do they have, is it... Uh, a cycle, the cycle of poverty or a cycle of, you know, mental health and um, all the statistics that we're constantly taught, but really looking at how our society is structured and how those structures influence people and how it also reflects the separation, the alienation that we all feel and which also is not just a symptom, but also it's constructed, it's a created reality. And then, so the challenge is, how do we come across these different constructed identities and with people that we're told we should hate or that have harmed us to see the commonality, I think is the challenge of our time right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So does anyone have any final words? And then we're going to go out with Nina Simone. I wish I, we, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Um, I, I think this conversation is really important too. And I hope that it continues <laughs> through Indigo Radio and other many, many other places um, to challenge us because I think the conversation around identity it, um, remains kind of in a smaller box than it needs to be just like we need to challenge and talk about everything that's connected to it so thanks for thanks for having the show (laughs) yeah thanks for the good conversation and start of it that's what we tell people right it's just like having coffee over a dining room table and when you come into the studio (laughs) that's what i tell them we have coffee and a table (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm grateful too i just um Every step towards solidarity, I feel like, is a step in the right direction. And so if we're looking at ourselves in order to figure out how to connect to each other as other beings, then, then to me, that's, that's what we need to be doing. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Indigo Radio. those blues away with Blue Monday every Monday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. here on WVEWLP 107.7 FM. I'm your host in the evening, Junior X, and I'll make sure you come out of these two hours of the blues 
feeling better than when you walked in. Junior, I heard you. Welcome, friends, to another.